0: How's it going?
1: It's good. I have been extremely productive lately. That's nice, and that's very uncommon for me. So this is hence why I am bringing it to the attention of everyone, including (laughs) you and our listeners, because I, after, uh, (laughs) after having a spat with my potato slicer, Mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps causing unnecessary harm to my physical form. It's finally like healed. Well, it's 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 coming along lovely. Uh my poor thumb is in recovery. <laughs> and it's, it's finally to the point where I don't feel like I have maimed myself anymore. So what's nice about that is that I finally had the emotional energy, strength and resolve to clean my apartment. Hey, which means nothing to anyone, but to me, it means everything. (laughs) And I've come up with a new, like, layout for my living room and I have a better setup in my bedroom with my computer. And I, I just feel, I feel slightly more connected to everything that I need to be connected to. And it feels nice. yesterday was one of the longest days of my life, but it was very productive and I'm proud of me for it. I'm proud of you for it too i'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna isolate that audio so that I can play it back to myself on repeat. <laughs> nice.
0: How about you? I'm okay. That's it <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh man, well
0: that what riveting conversation what thank riveting you my <laughs> I don't have much to talk about. There's nothing new. Oh, uh, I'm getting my driver's license. Whoa. Yeah. I had one. I had one and I exchanged it for a Belgian one and I'm getting it in a few days. Wait. Now remind me in the courts. Do you actually know how to drive? Not per se. (laughs) I I do know. I learned it. But then I never drove it again for like five, six years. (laughs) Fair enough. So I don't really know
1: anymore is sylvie the one who has a driver's license but actually can't drive or am i misremembering that was me
0: <laughs> that was you that was yeah me. i'm gonna take lessons okay <laughs> to remind myself look out belgium you've got a safe driver on your hands yes <laughs> or i will be Probably. i'm stephanie
1: and i'm elena and this is bet you wish this was an art podcast yay <laughs> It is yay. I think it's always exciting when we get to sit down and talk, especially when we get to sit down and talk about cool things like yes. architecture and yeah. ancient civilizations and and all sorts of really cool neat things that excite us and perhaps upset me, but mostly excite yeah. us. <laughs> I just have no time for it anymore, okay? I'm it's, sorry.
0: <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. I get it. <laughs> your your emotions are valid.
1: My emotions are valid, damn it. I just have, <laughs> I, it's fine. Uh, as the show title probably gave it away, and our beautiful cover art by our dear, lovely Lindsay Antonwood has probably given it away, we're talking about Angkor today. Indeed we are. Indeed oh. we are. I think we always knew we were going to end up here, but I'm so happy that we got to explore this together.
0: Yeah, me too. It's uh, truly a mesmerizing place that needs to be that needs an episode on its own maybe yes. several who knows
1: so maybe several if we if we're really getting spicy about the history of Angkor in general maybe perhaps and once we start <laughs> figuring out more things about it yeah, you know? indeed oh, man. so shall we get into it Oh my god, I just want to get into it, you know, because I'm already like six steps ahead. I really want to get into the discourse. So let's get into the structure.
0: <laughs> let's do it. So, Anger Wat, Anger Wat, emphasize on that, is the essentially the largest religious s- structure in the world. And it's located in Cambodia. It's in the Guinness Book of Records for the largeness. <laughs> For the, size. for the Which size Which is also really
1: cool <laughs> It is very cool Considering that this was made in the 10th century It's pretty cool 11th, yeah, it's very cool yeah. 11th, 10th <laughs>
0: Depen- yes. No, it's 12th 12. 12. Oh my god, what is what is dates? It was actually It began In 1116 CE mm-hmm. Likely, we don't know the exact Date or the exact time, um, but it was begun begun in the beginning of the 12th century, and then uh, and it was being built by uh, during the time of the uh, king uh, called Su- Suryavarman II, and we're going to get into the history of it but yeah just basic details it was it, it it began in the beginning of 12th century it ended in 1150 uh ish and um it was it might have been uh first meant to be a mausoleum of this king um and it was dedicated to the god uh, the Hindu god Vishnu but then it was changed to a Buddhist temple but We'll get into all of that.
1: We'll get into all of that. It stands on over more than a hundred and sixty-two uh, hectares. Heck, 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 hectares. I never, and uh, and this is just me as uh, someone unfamiliar with the metric system. But every time I look at that word, my brain struggles. Why? Because <laughs> it's acres. In imperial system, hectares or acres? No, <laughs> well, and technically, uh, a hect mm, a hectare is different than an acre because an acre is
0: bigger. I don't What's know imperial I metric system.
1: I don't know the metric system. So every time they were like six kilometers wide, I was like, mm. "It's big. <laughs> <laughs> it's just big. It's just very big." It's very big. When they were like, it's the size of Manhattan. I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Larger than London. All right.
0: It's the okay. size of uh, Los Angeles as well.
1: Yes. There's a lot of cities, we- modern day cities, we were comparing this ancient civilization to. And my heart went to pitter-patter every time. Like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, architecture and-, and civil engineering and and... It's so good for context to know. It is great. Sorry, we're so over the place. <laughs> it's Aren't just that always? it's so cool. It is and very I, and cool. I, you know, this is this is going to be our little preface, and we'll get very professional about it in just a second. But if we're thinking about it in terms of, like, ancient civilization, fine. It's, it's not it's that during, ancient. It's not even all that ancient. It's like Middle Ages. It's not ancient. It's not like Mahanjadaro, which is in the... No indeed. Three, four, five hundred. This is like pri- prime, 10th, 11th, 13th, 12th, 14th century. You know, all these areas that are well defined as, quote unquote the medieval era. Yeah, if we're thinking about it for, as a European history.
0: Yeah. Which this, it's fine. Uh- <laughs> but it was the golden age of Angkor at that time. Of the yes. Khmer Empire
1: and and it didn't come from nowhere i think when we finally get into the the, the history of it this is this is something that had been pers- uh, persevering for for many centuries um very similar to the islamic timeline in spain that 700 to 1400 kind of 700 window is a is a good approximation of when it was but mostly from the 9th century to the 15th century is yeah. is kind of like the the heyday or the the timeline that we're looking at yeah. for the Khmer Empire which is the empire that Angkor Wat kind of was able to flourish under and we'd be remiss to say that you know much like French explorers who rediscovered it in the 1800s, who stumble across this massive temple structure with all these mm-hmm. runes and stones and appear upon it in the woods and have no idea what they're looking at and what this giant metropolis in the jungle is. We have the luxury of having the timeline already established for us, yeah, which makes us want to just jump to the end. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go. Let's let's get through it. Let's go through the city. Let's go
0: through the history. Let's yeah. Let's figure it out. So before we jump to the end, we should jump to the beginning. One might say. One might say. One might say. I'm just excited. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's it's fine. I, I feel the excitement as well. Let's start with the founder of Khmer Empire. So this guy called Jayavarman II. During his time, there was a bunch of different communities that were fighting with each other, and it was kind of a a time of unrest. And he, with his iron fist, kind of (laughs) uh, gathered everyone together under one empire, and he declared himself the Devaraja, which is the god-king, essentially, which means like he 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 became king, but he was king because he was related to God. that's why which you know we are very familiar with that narrative. We see it everywhere in history,
1: and it's curious to think that perhaps through some sort of early trade or just because there was the sign of the times, there was maybe some sort of cultural influence either from from mainland China or from Maybe even some sort of relations with Europe, like early Europeans, that that concept of the ruler should be unto a god. And if not actually God, then related to or the chosen one of God,
0: essentially. And this Devaraja kind of royal cult was something that was passed down. And every king, every upcoming king, kind of took it upon himself to build something new or to make something new for the kingdom so that they could be remembered, which makes sense. And another king that was very prominent because he started what we now know as, or he started building what we now know as Anchor. So his name was Yasovarman I, and he essentially started building this new capital for the kingdom. And this capital is Anchor. Its original name was uh Yasodharapura. And he built essentially like many, many structures in this area. He built like a hundred monasteries, he built uh temple pyramids that are now very famous kind of uh from Anchor. Uh, he didn't build Anchor Watts, that's a bit later. But he built uh phnom Bakyeng. I don't remember how that one was pronounced. Uh and he dedicated it to Shiva. All of the th- all of these things were kind of dedicated to Hindu gods. And he also built the first water reservoir, the East Beret. Which is so cool.
1: It's that, very cool. And the fact that the stone carvings remain, the so there were a lot of like inscriptions and a lot of, like, protections and symbols, and the fact that it's the first and one of the largest, if not the largest? The largest Uh, is the West one. The largest is the West one, but Mm -hmm. one of the largest uh, hand-dug reservoirs. Yeah. And
0: the fact that it is still in use today. It is. Centuries later. The West Beret is the biggest one. It was built a hundred years later, and... The thing with water, we love water, and we love we love water. <laughs> we are obsessed. We with are water. obsessed with water. <laughs> the thing with anchor and water, the the area of Cambodia, this the specific area is kind of it only has two seasons. So one is like very very dry, and one is monsoons. <laughs> And so they had to find a way to irrigate this, to find a system of irrigation that would gather so much water that during the dry time, they would have enough to build crops for rice. And since rice literally needs to grow underwater, Mm -hmm. it was like very, very, very important to come up with a good system so they invested or they dug these two reservoirs and with these reservoirs the second one the west spere is so big it's huge and it essentially gave them enough water to make 10 20 times more rice than they would have regularly yeah.
1: and and to be fair the way that they had been living or the way that these uh the subsistence rice farmers had been living previously before the ascension of this like new god king was that they had to live next to the already I- available water systems um the great lake yeah for example floods to four times its size during the wet season and so that is where you would build your 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 little rice paddy that is where you would try to Create your fields because that would be the most fertile area. However, under this new expansion, the idea wasn't to use nature the way that it existed and the way that it sustained itself. It was to create your own and to challenge the the already existing environment and mold it to suit your needs. And you see that because that mastery of water canals and irrigation systems and creating the dams and levees that are necessary for uh the beret to work are so are so masterfully created. Yeah that centuries later it is still a viable yeah. option. It's very, very solid. <laughs> it's very solid. And considering, you know, that you have to make up for the fact that it will flood and there will be there will be drought. You have to be able to to collect enough water to survive the six months, but you also have to be able to use enough water so that when it floods again, you don't have massive widespread damage. Exactly. I just love how engineers fa- like figure this out. It's very cool. It's, it's very, very cool. cool. It, it is things that make my brain hurt, but in, <laughs> in really exciting ways. And the fact that it wasn't just it needs to work, it was also it
0: needs to be beautiful.
1: Yeah. Because if you're going to venerate, yeah, if you're going to venerate, it has to be with all of your everything that you have behind you and everything that you uh, can offer, if what you can offer is beauty, then offer beauty. Indeed.
0: Once they kind of had this water system and they had a, a, a stable, stable income of water, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, they could start focusing indeed on building the capital and. Making it beautiful and making it the sacred place that eventually became, at least in the temple areas, that's where our king Suryavarman the second kind of comes in, and he takes over uh, as king and he builds, starts building Angkor Wat. But the city itself, we we t- we right now are talking about Angkor Wat, which is the temple. It's very big. Yeah.
1: Yes, it's, it's it's the very it's the very uh, pretty image that people kind of envision if they think about Cambodia, where you've got the the big ruins and the big stone pillars and the gorgeous lotus shaped temples, yeah. surrounded by big trees and yes. and banyans kind of like growing through everything and and the roots of trees. Pushing up against stone architecture, and the, the idea of an abandoned city, the abandoned temple, uh, the ghost town visual, which is what you know drew me to it originally. That that visualization of like how we how we glorify it rather than what it was. We think about how it is, or at least that was before
0: lidar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into it. We'll get into it. The city itself. Was much bigger than the temple. It was huge, and it was only discovered to be that huge way later in the 21st century. Does that excite you
1: as much as it excites me? The idea that like we can't truly envision the the full scope of things without having
0: modern technology. There's uh there's gonna be great resources or sources uh, under our episode which are gonna be which are going to take you to footages of what it would have looked like or, like, estimation of what it would have looked like and how big it, it actually was. And they're awesome. The, the yeah, the, but we, we'll yeah. get into it. <laughs> <laughs> For First, uh, essentially, Anchor has many sites and extends over, like, 124 square mile district. The ruins are of like several hundred monuments built of mostly sandstone, and they range from sizes. and The largest is Anchorwad. Anchorwad itself is kind of now in in between this square of water. It has water all around it, but that was added later. That wasn't intended to be like that in the beginning. But it's this uh, structure with a gate around it. It took 37 years to build. Uh, The central tower is more than 200 feet. And it has a bunch of sculptures, bas reliefs, that depict great stories from epic Indian poems like the Mahabharata and the uh, Ramayana. And it was dedicated Mm -hmm. to Vishnu. Which is strange. Remember
1: when we were super excited that the uh, Hagia Sophia was built in like 250 years? Yeah. Remember how we were like, wow, what an architectural wonder. Yeah. Not only is it interesting to me because of the fact that it was um, heavily detailed and incredibly intricate, but the fact that it was, as far as uh, current research shows, a very communal effort. and And there are many theories behind why... This was possible um, because under normal circumstances, if it was just one person's desire to have, like, a temple built, right, you'd get more along the other stepped pyramids around the world from Peru or from Egypt. You know, big, monumental, exciting projects, but they wouldn't be the size of Manhattan. Yeah. Instead of, like oh, we're trying to do this for one person's success, you really break it down to, we firmly believe in venerating not only our god king, but our society, our roles, our our everything. And we are willing to put our entire lives on the line, our, our abilities and our structures to serve this higher purpose. And of course, being able to have Not only the manual labor from citizens and the protection of the state in return for it, you know, that that quid pro quo, Mm. then all of the mentions of slavery also didn't hurt. Yeah. And considering that the um, Khmer Empire was a war, you know, a warmongering empire, one that was very obsessed and very particular about legacy building and war and intrigue and politics and architecture and beauty and all this other stuff it it speaks back to you know that that primal desire to be the best and if you have enemies quote unquote enemies in your neighbors then you constantly have an influx of purpose you constantly have an influx of innovation and technology and and the the self pride of being able to say, well, we took on X Y Z. We we've defeated the Siamese. We've defeated our enemies in you know like, you know what I mean. It, it it turns into this like glory campaign. And if you can also say we have built the largest temple for our guy for our protector, then that becomes a slightly more. Uh, convincing argument as to why you would dedicate so much energy into building something this massive.
0: If you believe that you're building uh, on the order of your your god who is related to your king, so your king told you to do it, so your king is god, kind of, you do it. Because you want god to have, like, to look well upon you. And it's also because they're Because their livelihood, because their food depended so much on the weather, something that you can't control. Anyway, it kind of also instills this idea of, oh, maybe then something divine can help me. And so they turn to their god, their king, and do as the king says. Mm -hmm. Everything aligned for this to happen. (laughs) They managed to build this immense society, this immense city. At at that time, in London, there were living like 80, maximum, 80,000 people. Yeah. And here, it was like half a million, or like quarter of half a million, which is so much more.
1: There's There are myths surrounding Angkor Wat, which makes sense. You know, you you create this incredible uh, metropolis. You create this incredible city. And according to myth, the construction of Angkor Wat was ordered by Idra to serve as like a palace, right? And a palace for his son. But the myths surrounding it also come into, we don't know if this was meant to be a palace. We don't know if this was meant to be... A fortress. We don't know if this was meant to be a temple. We don't know if this was meant to be a tomb. And perhaps, in a sense, it's meant to be all of it. You know, you give back to what you've built. So to have the ashes of your king, uh, in one of the temp like the lotus temples, makes sense. Um, there was a. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me both laugh and scream. There was a 13th century Chinese scholar, uh, Zhao da- uh, Dagong, Daguan. Yeah. Uh, who documents his experience in Angkor Wat, and, and mostly in Angkor. And he has feelings <laughs> about the inhabitants of the area. They, do. they may create this incredible, elaborate city and masterpiece, and he might enjoy his time there, but he does call them barbarians, which is interesting.
0: Well... Well.
1: Well, y- the thing oh, is... Yes.
0: The thing is... <laughs> At that time, mm-hmm. everything outside of China for, for Chinese people, the propaganda that they were fed was that everything outside of China.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, and, and are they wrong? But, but on the <laughs> same, t- but in, in the same, in the same vein, that level of like closed-minded elitism is, is yeah. that like grain of salt that really needs to be taken in with a lot of the, the scholarly research in surrounding Angkor Wat. So little is known and so little is preserved. And so much of it was abandoned, devoured by the forest that surrounds it. Yeah. That it's, it's really tough to know how they viewed themselves and how they presented themselves and how they, uh, how they were motivated by their yeah. own decisions. Yeah. But the fact that we have, uh, Zhao Guan's uh, account for it also helped to, To reinstate the fact that this civilization existed. Oh, it helped so much. It helped so much. It helped so much because when we're looking at it from the 18th, 19th century going, well, what is this place? (laughs) Why are these these stone temples in the middle of a forest in the middle of Cambodia? You at least had a source from roughly the same time, that 13th century mark, that uh, could could reaffirm that this civilization was alive and thriving. Yeah. So yes, it had, it had its um, biases towards it, and it had a, a definitive narrative. It was also extremely thorough. It was. Despite the fact that, you know, some people believed that, or uh, according to Jadaguan's uh, account of it, there were some people who believed that Angkor Wat had been built in a single day. Yeah, or I'm sorry, a single night by a divine architecture, or in a single night by a divine architect. Yeah, (laughs) it 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 speaks to the the magic that this city already held from the very beginning, and the fact that it was so captivating and so exciting and so wonderful, even from like well into its you know existence. Zhao Daguan's
0: text, it's called the Customs of Cambodia, and it is available if you want to read it. Well, you have to. It, I think, but it is translated. And despite some facts being a bit not looked at or overlooked or just not mentioned at all or mentioned mm-hmm. wrongly, <laughs> uh, a lot of the information in his text is invaluable because he talks about little details of life in. Anchor that kind of help us have a better image of life there at that time. While he was kind of, he was more upper class and he was hanging out with Chinese people in Anchor while he was there. So his uh, account maybe uh, is from that perspective. He still mentions like the flora and fa- fauna of the region. He talks about food. He talks about how markets were set up. He talks about the colors of like walls and ceilings and, uh, like trade and city life in general and how the Chinese were treated in, in there and how, how there were many Chinese who lived there too and the war against the Siamese and all of these different aspects of Anchor Life that we wouldn't have if he didn't write this text. The thing is that from the original script, there's, there's things missing. So probably during translation or during like rewriting, it was lost. Some details were lost. But, and, and he also wrote it like years after he left. He wrote it as like a memoir way after he visited Anchor. Which, where he lived for a year. So his account is very, very va- valuable. And it's very, very cool that we have it.
1: <laughs> and it's only one part of the whole puzzle, but yeah. I think it, it really does demonstrate the power of archives,
0: damn it. Yes. <laughs> archives are the best. Archives are the best. Record stuff. <laughs> Write
1: stuff Write it down. It down.
0: Not on Literally your computer. Write it down.
1: Just put it on a piece of paper and put that piece of paper somewhere. And in like 40 to 140 years from now, someone is going to read it and go, Oh my God. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you like, we don't describe things that are regular. So we don't describe, for example, what a horse looks like in detail. Because we know what a horse looks like. We don't need to say it has four legs or a long nose or pointy ears. Because we know this. But if horses no longer existed, yeah. then all of that information is lost. So we don't know anymore how many legs did a horse have. Then we end up with these weird designs
1: of rhinos with yeah. pleated skin. <laughs> it's, just, it's just all bad.
0: Okay? Yeah, so it's good to... <laughs> be precise it's also the reason why all of these information all of this information is lost to us because people didn't think that recording something that was regular was necessary because it was regular
1: and that's not to say that there wasn't writing on these structures there was Um, there are some really fantastic uh, documentaries that we watched as long that like kind of breaks down that not only do you find uh Hindu on a lot of these things but also like Sanskrit yeah and how all of these neatly written very detailed accounts of what's happening are also the logs and the 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 histories and the summaries of what was happening and and we see this also with the uh the deciphering of hieroglyphics right when when you can finally read yeah. the what was you know plainly established mm-hmm. in, on Egyptian tombs the same effect happens in Angkor Wat, and when you can finally break down the language barrier and you can finally dive deep into all right well what's being said and what's being written and there was a seven tome account uh, when a French scholar deciphered the the actual written language into French but from French, as the Rosetta Stone proves, you can do a lot of things.
0: Mm. <laughs>
1: and you're then able to to decipher what's being said, and with that access to the text, you have this much deeper understanding, appreciation of what's being, you know, written. Because if you know that there's Sanskrit, all it takes is someone who can read ancient Sanskrit. Yeah. Which is, weirdly enough, more common than I was expecting. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. I mean, I suppose if you're going to go study uh, ancient Hindu temples, that, that, that Hindu to Buddhist temple regime, you you should learn some Sanskrit. So, very cool. Very, <laughs> very cool, indeed. But the fact that you're then able to, to break down, oh, wait, they they do have written lists of... What was exchanged for goods and services? What we acknowledged as uh, important and why? What certain prayers came through and and what was being venerated and who was being venerated to to achieve what goal? Yeah. And the fact that you then had this breakdown offers way more information about the site, indeed, which makes you know makes, which makes sense. But we didn't have that information up until realistically. Recent. Quite recent, indeed. Which comes back to write everything down. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Thank you. Please. We want to know why we have... Uh, we want to know what kind of rituals and services were were taking place. And it was because of all this writing and because of a uh, level of conservation that has gone into and research that has gone into Angkor Wat that really does depict, like, so what were these temples for? And what was, like, all right, we have... We have the structure itself, and it's definitely a temple mountain type thing, right? Uh, A a typical design for this region, where you've got the four pillars, and they're all within a concentric square of each other, and it all works. And there's definitely this concept of celestial importance and significance. Oh, yeah. But like... But what does it mean, and what is it trying to represent? And there were these thoughts of being Mount Meru, uh, the home of the gods—you know, the the Hindu equivalent of Olympus. What does this mean, and can we prove it? And
0: <laughs> well, and kind of, kind of, kind of, yeah, because um, the structure itself looks like uh, number five on a dice piece. Yes, um, so it's like four dots and then one in the one in the middle. And it's connected with these like gallery spaces, which is like essentially a hallway. And all of this kind of is meant to represent Mount Meru, house of gods. The mount, the mountain range, the walls are there to, to kind of symbolize the mountain range and oceans. Uh, and yeah, the, you could also access the upper areas of the temple but it was more like only the elite can access the top levels. And essentially Angkor Wat, this is Angkor Wat we're talking about. Uh, anchor Wat is kind of a combination of different architectural types that kind of then became one and became the style of anchor Wat, named after it itself. Um, and it's this combination of a temple mountain which is the standard design. So it's like pyramid kind of looking temple. And then added to this, the galleries. It's not only in that that it also has like this celestial thing around it, this celestial imagery, but also because of the way it's structured. Because first of all, it faces the wrong way. <laughs> It faces mm-hmm. west instead of east, which is what it usually should f- face towards. But since it's, it was dedicated to Vishnu, it's facing east. And since it, uh, it, 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 it's also like at a certain time for like solstices and stuff like that, it aligns uh, perfectly. So like flight falls at perfect places. <laughs> It also signifies this the, the pointing towards the west that it's counterclockwise, which kind of means like it's a, the reverse of the normal order. And this kind of also convince or like gives us hints that maybe this was meant as a as a funerary temple where the king would be buried because only then it is that the procession goes backwards. So it might be because of this that it's it's standing as it is. But who knows? We don't know. It might also not be, because uh, also uh, several other temples of Anchor depart from the typical Eastern Orientation. So it could be that Anchor is normal. (laughs) And it
1: might just have been a stylistic choice, or it could have been used for a a funerary mount, but... More. Or you know, it could have been just its dedication to Vishnu. It could have been. It could have been a lot of things. It could have been a lot of
0: things. But that's what's so interesting about it. It is. <laughs> it is very interesting, and
1: and the fact that it's so interconnected to its surroundings, right? So they they build not only the the five structures, but also this massive moat. Yeah. Right around the structure. So it's it goes back to this concept of you're floating on water to enter this paradise. But more specifically, the way that the structure itself is held up, um, I, was, I, was, I was flabbergasted and also very excited by this. <laughs> the fact that you had to clear the surrounding pool and collect all of these materials, right? So mm-hmm. the, the stone, the silt, the mud, etc., etc. You clear, you clear the water, or you clear the, the surrounding moat around it. You fill it with water. The water... Then becomes heavier than the materials that you've removed from it, because it's now all of this pressure of water. Hmm. and it's it's fairly deep, so you have different uh, atmospheres of pressure the deeper you go. And so, in a sense of buttressing, that that same concept that like holds up or held up the French cathedrals, mm. you have this idea of, oh, well if the water applies its own pressure against the stairs that we've built to also act as like supports and a decorative piece. But you know, if, if pressure is applied to the structure and the foundation, then the foundation of our massive complex can remain. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. But Indeed. also ties into this concept of the deep interconnectedness of it, of everything because yeah. of the fact that, you you are using your surrounding area and you're using your materials, and you have such a deep understanding of what it is you're working with. You are able to to put it all together, come up with the formulas that are required to do it, and then execute it. Yeah. Also, uh, was it was it the temples documentary or was it the uh, uh the the uh, the the forest Atlantis one that was talking about the genius of it all? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. One of them kept calling it a work of genius, and I was like, stop. (laughs) We don't believe in genius. We don't believe in genius around these parts. (laughs) But it talks about if ancient Sanskrit and Khmer texts depict that, like, the religious monuments and temples specifically are organized to be in such a way that they are in harmony with the universe, then Angkor Wat proves that. It itself is in harmony with its universe. It is in harmony with its surrounding area. It is in harmony with its alignment. Which has <sighs> compared to the history of the region, pretty intense.
0: It is also has it also has these thousand two hundred square meters of carved bass reliefs. And it, it's it shows these different stories, this these different Hindu stories, and one of them uh, is, like, the churning of the ocean milk myth of, like, a big battle between the gods and the demons. But there's, like, so many of these reliefs. And, o- like, now we're only talking about anchor Wat. But, yeah. There's a lot of really good pictures online that you could look at to get a very good, a better visual. Because we can describe these for hundreds of years, but it's completely different when you see it. I want to move on a bit to what happened after Sur- Suryavarman kind of finished Anchor Wat. because he he didn't really finish it. He died before it was finished, and it was kind of left unfinished. Some parts are not complete. And years later, Anchor was sacked by the Chams, which was kind of their enemy at the time. And from that sacking rose a new king, Jayavarman the eighth. Oh, no, the seventh. He essentially restored the empire and he came into reign when he was like 60. He built Anchor Tom and he built the Bayon and he changed the entire idealism of the of the whole city. Before it was Hindu, he believed that the Hindu gods betrayed his people, so he changed it to Buddhist. And, and then from there
1: on, it's a purely Buddhist society and tradition. Yeah. Meaning that like the same desires and pursuits of the grandiose vision of Angkor Wat was never you know, re-inspired. It, you never had to achieve that goal because you had a different earthly mission.
0: And also like there were statues that they kind of decapitated and <laughs> changed the heads into the god the the heads of Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> they changed the entire temp- the, the entire system. While as it became kind of a Buddhist temple, it, it still continued to be very respected as a sacred space. And we could do a whole different episode on Anchor Tom. And if you guys are interested in that, we can do that because that is a whole can. monster so cool. in and of itself. But yeah, Jayavarman, the seventh, he lived until like 90 and he did so much. And yeah, I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> I respect the hustle. I respect the hustle.
1: Um, also. Uh, As we're continuing through history, that artistic legacy of Angkor Wat and other Khmer monuments in the Angkor region Mm. are what leads directly to France adopting Cambodia as a protectorate or as their protectorate in the 1860s. So in August of 1863, also what led to France invading other regions to take control of ruins and other areas like that yeah and this led to an interesting history but essentially during that 90 reign uh, 90 year period you do have a lot of work on angkor wat specifically trying to bring the temple structure back to itself Mm. And it's pieces, like, taking a lot of the ruins and, and clearing a lot of the forest surrounding it so that they could have, like, a proper excavating site.
0: Angkor Wat was kind of in use more or less until the eighteenth 1800s because of the Buddhist monks that came here uh, for religious purposes. But it kind of stopped being populated in the 15th century. It could be several reasons. Mostly it's because of like the uprising Thai kingdoms that, that were kind of invading. And it could also be because of, uh, the Buddhism, new type of Buddhism that came in, which was the, uh, uh, Theravada, uh, Buddhism, uh, which also changed the perception of like your ruler isn't the, the God anymore. So why serve your king if he's not related to God? So that right. that kind of uh, mindset took over as well. And it could be because of environmental change, because uh, there were huge environmental catastrophes that happened during that time, or could have happened at that time, because of climate change and because of uh, monsoons kind of doubling, tripling, the reservoirs overflowing. Too much water. Um, <laughs> yeah, it eventually led to kind of gradual disuse and abandonment of not entire abandonment, but gradual stepping away from anchor until it was quote unquote rediscovered by the French later on. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, um, well, first there was the Cam- Cam- Cambodians got their independence, and then it kind of everything went to shit I put it mildly there was this huge civil war and the Khmer uh this communist party took over in the 1970s and 80s they they were not good people <laughs> they did such bad things a few they if, committed if mass know, genocide
1: yeah i uh, but like to the nth degree theirs theirs is responsible for the the killing and massacre of so many cambodians and in that four year reign of terror more than a million cambodians including scientists and historians and educators were killed
0: anyone who spoke out against them were killed and it anyone who was capable of independent thought because that's dangerous in a communist movement.
1: M- Maoism mostly. Yeah, it's yeah, inspired by Mao Zedong and the inspiration of
0: the Vietnam War and my partner has been to Cambodia and he was at the mass graves that they have for these people Ugh. who they massacred and there's just such insane imagery like there's there's these fields that still have skeletons in them on them like you can see still skeletons you can still see skeletons there yeah um because they haven't been able to clean everything up and it's bad it's very bad it's very, (laughs) very 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 bad
1: what's interesting though is that since the uh since the reclaiming of cambodia since then or since the the 90s essentially UNESCO acknowledges Angkor Wat as a world heritage site which yep. circumvents all of the damage that was done to it during the um not only a civil war but also the the reign of Paul and uh the Khmer Rouge and all of that and mm-hmm. uh with the help of different nations being able to to fund research trips and other various Excavation, restoration endeavors. It, yeah, I was just adding to your <laughs> sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> it didn't. I didn't register what you had said until like after I had spoken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it is. Yeah, you know it it's gross and raining outside. Leave me alone.
0: You're fine. No, I'm fine.
1: But um, not only the establishment of it being a world heritage site, but in 2015, the University of Sydney announced that it was forming a research team to excavate and to reestablish what the the demolished construction of Ankarawat looks like using um, really cool laser scanning technology. <laughs> really cool laser scanning it's technology. So cool. LiDAR is so cool. LiDAR uh, is essentially, the best. LiDAR or L I D A R is light detection and ranging, and it's essentially like an X ray. But you're using a remote sensing method, kind of like echolocation, to mm-hmm. examine the surface of the Earth. Yeah. So you've got uh, these sensors that sent down light pulses, which combine that with other data recording by the system. That, like, create precise three-dimensional information about the shape of the Earth and, like, all of the things that are on it. And it 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 kind of works like a laser it's a it's a laser it's a scanner and it's a GPS receiver and if you fly over a region in like an airplane or a helicopter you can then create these like topographic charts that if you plug into the correct systems and the correct data or the the correct software you can then use that material to create structures uh like we have linked in the sources below <laughs> yeah because it is so cool um, and while it is extremely expensive, do not get me wrong, it's, it's a very expensive program to run, to operate. It is so much more effective than doing hand surveys on the ground, geographical surveys that not only require a lot of time and energy, but also don't create a final product in the same way at with the same ease that a system like LIDAR uses.
0: They found so much.
1: (laughs) They found so much. They were like, oh, well, uh, what's over on these regions? So they start off with, like, you know, the the main central area. Then they go, oh, wow, there's a lot here. And then they expanded their search and discovered that they have to keep going. Because it's (laughs) never ending. University
0: of Sydney is doing a lot of great work when it comes to uh, moving forward. There's this great podcast that helped me a lot with the research for this episode, which is... I think the guy is a graduate of University of Sydney. Mm. And it's called In the Shadows of Utopia, a Cambodian history podcast. And they have, like... So far, I think there's, like, 14 episodes out, and they're only on the French parts now. (laughs) And he talks about all of it. Everything. And he also has... One of the guys who, or the uh, no, one of the guys who is creating the 3D VR uh, experience for Anchor Watt, which is also fucking cool. That's so he has him on for an interview as well. So as a bonus episode, very cool. Check it out. But this guy who he has on, he and his team are working on this program this experience, these videos, animated videos of what life would look like back then. And uh, they have a website, you can check it out. Um, what's the website called again? It's the v- virtualanchor.com. I- I've seen some of the footage, it's, it's very cool. It shows you like what streets would have looked like, probably <laughs> what the people would have looked like, what the environment was like kind of brings you into the world of Angkor of that time, more or less, but it's a phenomenal project you guys should check it out
1: I think you say it best, where that the temples of Southeast Asia have never stood alone, and they are always in dialogue with other temples, from elaborate structures like Angkor Wat to humble spirit shrines indeed, and that all of this is to say in the great and elaborate words of L. Woods, what? Like it's hard? (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Lovely. And then I thank you so much for doing this episode with me.
0: Thank you too, Stephanie. (sighs) I love this. (laughs) It was a lot of fun to research. If you guys want Anchor Tom, we can do that. (laughs) We will do it. (laughs) We will do it. (laughs)
1: D- don't d- you don't have to raise your voice
0: we will do it <laughs> <laughs> but also please raise your voice <laughs> raise
1: your voice sing it loud sing it proud oh man for more southeast asian temple excitement updates newsletters transcripts blog posts and more head on over to our
0: website at bywartpod.com. you can also find us on instagram at bywrpod
1: and on twitter at BYWartpod. and you can also email us at,
0: bywrpod
1: at gmail.com. And, of course, you can check us out on our Patreon. Patreon is the best way to support us if you like the work that we're doing here at BiWAP. Come say hi. Wash your hands.
0: Don't touch your face. Go to Anchor Watt. Go to Anchor Watt.
1: Support the... uh, I'm baffled by the numbers and the... uh, (laughs) Safely travel. Support archaeological excavations. Write things down. Yes.
0: Indeed. And remember... Write so much, When in doubt, titty out. (laughs) Lovely. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye.